Hi, everyone. Welcome to Manufacturing Hub on this early Wednesday morning show. I have promised Vlad that we will mention SPS and the fact that we will be at SPS Fair no less than three times during the course of this show. We do want to thank Siemens for both sponsoring this team as well as hauling Vlad and I out to, to Europe to come hang out with some of the other European crowd. But part of the reason why the show is going off now is because in three hours, I will be on an airplane, or I suppose a little bit longer than three hours, but, but shortly I will be on an airplane heading to heading to one of many time zones that I'm going to go visit in the next couple of weeks. Having said that, if you guys are, are new here, welcome. If you've been here before, welcome back. Almost every Wednesday, we, Vlad and I, run Manufacturing Hub. We're, we're very happy to have Josh back on. We'll go reintroduce Josh in a moment. We do our very best to have an active chat. So if you guys have questions or thoughts, please feel free to go drop them in the chat. Every once in a while, we've got an issue with chat. Vlad is now peppering our LinkedIn chat, and we can go see it live on here. So if you guys are on LinkedIn and you want to go chat, please feel free to go ahead and do that. If we don't get to go to all of your questions, then if we don't get to all of your questions, then we will do our very best to get back to them at the end. Without further ado, I would like to officially welcome everyone to Manufacturing Hub. This is episode 142, and and we'd like to welcome Josh Varghese back to the show. Josh, thank you for being here. Welcome back. Hey guys, I'm getting like a 10 second echo delay of Dave's audio in my ears. Do you have the stream open in a, in a tab as well? Mm. Or is this the only interesting? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> th th then that is why we have the 10 second delay. I'm like, but we didn't have this issue for the first 15 minutes of chatting. So we'll go ahead and let Josh go mute that and tell yeah. everyone we, we all should have drank maybe slightly more coffee before we got on. But Morning uh, after Halloween, man. I had a lot of candy. Josh is actually still up on the candy, and we will get to Halloween, and we will get to, to Josh's stranger um, with, with Pennywise. Josh, before we let you go ahead and, and remind everyone what it is that you do on, on the networking side, which in my mind is just everything when it comes to OT Networks, I do want to let everyone know Josh was on here almost 100 episodes ago on episode 59. One of my maybe most fun shows, because as soon as we got off, I swear I got a message from Josh saying that his girls went to the Alexa hub or, or the, the Google hub or something like that and was like, play Josh on Manufacturing Hub. And, and it just immediately started playing. So th that is one of my most favorite memories of, of the first hundred episodes that we've had so far, Josh. That's awesome. <laughs> But no, Josh, if we can, first of all, thank you again for joining us on this morning. If we can get an introduction, I think that you're certainly a fairly known figure on LinkedIn, but those who may not know you, what it is that you do, what is your background, how did you get into the automation slash networking space, and ultimately, what are you doing with Traceroute? Yeah, so I started Traceroute almost six years ago now, and our primary, and I would say sole focus is OT networking. So whether it's consulting, design, troubleshooting, pro product recommendations, procurement, testing, training, but everything, we put a pretty tight box around OT networking. And when I say tight box, what I mean is we don't program PLCs or HMIs or SCADA systems. We have some history with that from before starting Traceroute to make us maybe 
better fit sometimes and easier to work with than sometimes the customer's own IT organization in-house. So we have familiarity, strong familiarity with the OT systems. But in terms of scope of work, we're often working either directly with the end user or sometimes augmenting the system integrator. So they're handling all the PLC and SCADA and HMI work, but maybe they could use a hand with just the networking piece because as we're discussing today, it's becoming critically more important. It's maybe been, not maybe, I, I would argue it's heavily been neglected for the last 10 to 20 years. And it's becoming obvious that you can't, can't get away with that anymore to achieve some of these things they're looking to achieve, let alone maybe even keep these networks up. A lot of these systems are regularly tipping over and having production downtime. So there's a increased interest and desire to go in this area. And this is all we do. And that's like to your comment, I really, the fact that it, it's almost described as, I think, the plumbing of the manufacturing industries in, in some way. And I think that in many ways that is not as, let's call it sexy as AI, machine learning or data applications. And it's less talked about for that reason. But I think it's a fundamental, I want to say, uh, layer that needs to be, I want to say, dealt with, but also implemented correctly in order to make any other technologies possible. So I guess, how do you, in your conversations, maybe get to discuss or maybe get to um, place networking as a much more important piece, I would say, than maybe some of those other initiatives or a precursor to some of those other initiatives? Yeah, it's funny. I remember before I started Traceroute, I spent almost a decade at a distributor that was focused on industrial networking. And similarly, they didn't sell PLCs, HMIs. They just sold networking, OT networking hardware. And I remember they had hired like a biz dev guy for services, maybe when I was one or two years into the job. And I remember talking to him about, I don't think you're going to have success like shoving networks down people's throats, just like doing cold calls and telling people like, you need a new network. The network's important. What's going to happen is we do need to go make that tour and introduce and make sure everybody knows who we are. But what's going to happen is they're going to call us when there's a problem. <laughs> we're going to identify the root cause of that problem. And we're going to flag why that problem shouldn't even be possible in your system if you had a more robust network. And that's when you're going to get the opportunity to talk to them about when can we look at redoing this network. And that has stayed true for us as Traceroute for the last six years. It is very rare that someone's just randomly calling or that we're talking to somebody and be like, hey, do you want to <laughs> rip and replace your network? That is pretty much never the conversation. It is almost always there's been an incident or there have been a number of incidents and it is causing enough production downtime that it's costing them significant money. And they're like, why is this happening? How do we prevent it from happening again? And so we have, we basically are forced to parlay the let's fix the problem first, discuss why it happened and talk about what we can do to prevent this from happening again, which typically means going from this flat, unmanaged spaghetti mess of a network into something more robust. And I guess as a follow up on that, to dig into that a little bit more, I know that you guys train, you guys consult, you guys implement. And so I guess I'd like to understand a bit more what do you see in the end user landscape when it comes to why these issues arise? Is it because of the lack of knowledge? Is it simply because they don't have anybody specialized in networks? Is it because maybe the hardware is not the same as on the IT side? What are what kind of challenges or what kind of buckets maybe you would put their problems under? Or maybe it's all of the above, right? I'm assuming it's some balance of all of Yeah, the I was just going to scream yes. 
<laughs> but one thing, even when I describe what I do, whether it's to family or to friends, and they're trying to understand basically why is my job necessary? There's this interesting point to it, which I always describe as, man, this relationship in most verticals, it's like an end user and system integrator relationship. Maybe their primary system integrator that takes care of most of their automation system upgrades or CapEx jobs, or maybe it's an internal group within the organization. But oftentimes when it's this end user SI relationship, there's just this gap where the end user is assuming that the system integrator who's responsible for providing this new control system or control system expansion the network's part of it. So they're assuming there's a high level of skill and experience on the networking side. And often the integrator's thinking like, that's not our job. Like, I don't own your entire factory floor network. We're just here to add a new line. And so then there's this gap of kind of not us <laughs> in terms of just who is responsible and where the expectation is. So sometimes it just starts as simply as that. Traditionally, there hasn't been at the end user necessarily a role like you're describing. There hasn't even been a job to attack it from the end user perspective. And then from the system integrator perspective, and, and I think we're seeing like a level up in the skills at the system integrators because they're realizing, oh, the, the end user is expecting us, expecting this of us, demanding this of us. Uh, but often the gap just starts there that there is no job for this. And this is starting to pick up. I, I, I've mentioned recently that, oh, I've got customers, larger customers bringing or uh, asking us for help in writing job descriptions because they've got 15 automation engineers. And maybe with the system they're building, the sizes they could justify an OT networking person. So far, I still haven't seen it. It started as that conversation and it has grown into maybe it's an OT infrastructure person. So it'll be network, server, applications, database. And I'm like, okay, this network's really big and they're going to have a really hard time. Like this network is big enough to, in my opinion, to justify the position. But I, I understand going from zero <laughs> to full-time network. I, I understand why it's just going to take a while for that still to get recognized and applied. Josh, I've got a ton more questions for you on, on many of those sides. But uh, Dave, what are, you, what are your thoughts on all of this? Absolutely, Josh. I think I think it's interesting. And one of our goals this month is to talk about what the future is going to become of all of these factories. And, and as Vlad and I were discussing uh, you coming on, I, I feel like to, to your earlier point, those networks are very much going to be the backbone of, of everything we build, right? That there's going to be more machinery, there's going to be more information that we need to go past and we want to go collect the data. And then maybe we're going and pushing things to the cloud, right? That there will only be more of this. I guess before we get into what all of these positions are going to look like, what does your general conversation look like? It, it feels overwhelming in just the first 10 minutes that we've had this conversation. I was an end user and it's got 15 automation engineers and I really need a, an OT network engineer, but I might not be able to have this. So maybe we can start it as an infrastructure engineer, but th there's so much of it. So when you go talk to people, where do you, what are your recommendations on where groups? Yeah. Start? And that varies widely by who the customer is, what they have from a budget appetite, it, what they have resources wise, but a big part of our job, like the reason this wall is so crowded with a bunch of different vendors and you constantly see me yapping online about different platforms, different solutions is because I cannot answer the question who makes the best managed switch. For example, like I, it's a non-starter question to me because ultimately, like maybe I could go through that wall 
and potentially call some products A tier and call some products B tier and call some products C tier in terms of capability. But I, I would argue that 90% of the systems we go into, they, they don't necessarily need an A tier solution. Like a B tier solutions totally like it's going to be a major upgrade from what they're doing. It's going to make their network a lot more robust and they may not have the personnel or skill set required to do some of the additional things available in that A tier. So I, I talk a lot about taking step one, which is we, we don't need to solve everything today. So this is your immediate problem, for example, the fact that the network is one giant flat network, one big broadcast domain, and it's, frankly speaking, gotten too noisy. You've got all these devices in your network that there's a little bit of chatter, broadcast traffic that is inherent to running a network. And so there's a certain amount of it that every device can tolerate. But when that ratio starts to go upside down, when you're listening to mostly noise versus the messaging you're trying to do or the responses you're trying to give, that's when devices start to become less responsive or even at the extreme end, lock up. And the call we're getting is these drives are faulting out or this PLC is locking up and we have to go cycle power and then it'll, it'll run again for another two weeks or a week or a day or a few hours. So often we're like, okay, let's just take step one. Let's manage the managed switches you have. You've got managed switches, but nobody's even put IP addresses on them. So let's get IPs assigned. Let's start to look at some VLAN segmentation. Let's make these rooms. Think about it like everybody's in some giant conference room together and we're going to throw up some walls and create some individual rooms for maybe individual process lines or process areas. And a lot of times that's step one is as far as we go with a lot of customers, we're ready to talk about the next steps, but there, thanks for solving that. We'll see you in 10 years. This is great. <laughs> if I can add, Josh, in my experience, it's even that the customer doesn't fully know or understand what's on their network, right? A lot of times they have an initial idea. The systems integrator came in and put their new line or new machine onto the network, but then modifications were made. We added new things and I, I think that step is like very important, as you said, just the fundamentals of understanding the network and being able to maybe like segment, identify the devices. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of susceptible hardware to traffic. And I think we've talked about this a bit off stream, like safety devices, at least I know in the Rockwell world, if you don't get the signals back within a certain like time frame, it immediately falls out. And you can spend, again, as an OT engineer, you can spend hours because you don't have the right tools, you don't have the right knowledge, you're just trying to figure out what's uh, bringing it down and you're always looking, not on the network side, you're looking on that safety hardware and it's very difficult to troubleshoot these problems. Yeah, we had a Food & Bev customer reach out through an integrator just last week. It's the second time we've ended up on a call with them in about six months and both times it's been similar things where they're describing drives faulting out and it's heavily affecting production and I'm asking, talking them through gr grabbing some captures so that we can review remotely because I have some suspicions of what it's likely going to be given the control platform environment or something like that. And this most recent time, they sent me the capture. I opened it up. I was like, oh, this one's obvious. <laughs> and what I see in the capture is this is what's called a broadcast domain capture, meaning we're not doing anything specific. I'm not asking them to mirror a port to the drive that's faulting. I'm just asking him to plug into any available port in the system and just hit start in Wireshark and hit stop two minutes later. Because what's in that capture, if it's hitting his laptop, it's hitting every other node in that network. Right. So th that gives me some sense as to how, how chatty is the broadcast domain. And in that particular network, so there's a protocol in the Rockwell world mostly of DLR, device level ring. And 
whenever you set up a DLR ring, it's intended that maybe you're setting up an EN2TR as the ring supervisor. And then you've got other nodes that participate, they're DLR capable and participate in this ring. Now, what happened in this case is somebody checked the box on that EN2TR for enable supervisor mode and then just plugged it into a linear network. And that supervisor sends DLR beacons every 400 microseconds to do its job. And when you're in a ring architecture, you've got the right chipsets to process those beacons and prioritize them and let the supervisor do its job. When you're not in a ring architecture, those frames are reserved multicast frames, which will flood. So every node in the system is just getting hammered with every 400 microseconds, this DLR beacon, which has nothing to do with it. And so these drives are just, the complaint from them is we go to start a drive, like uh, the PLC issues the start command to the drive and it just doesn't do anything and it doesn't do anything and it doesn't do anything. We got to go like manually start that drive. And I was like, okay, looking at this capture, 40% of the traffic this drive is seeing is these DLR beacons. So assuming this was just a mistake, nobody meant to check this box, or maybe it was checked by default in a certain, who knows. When you get the chance, let's go uncheck this box. Tell me if the behavior goes away. And let's also grab another capture just to look at the before and after. But I'm pretty confident based on seeing similar issues like this before that they're going to be like, oh, we're having no problem starting this drive anymore. And that's that where I'm talking about it. 40% of what you're processing is just noise. It becomes real hard to do your job. And that's a very interesting example, right? Because I've certainly set up DLRs, but I, I didn't know, again, what would happen if you put a non-DLR device into that ring, let alone just configure a random sort of like master device that will send those packets. And I guess like I will admit that I wouldn't even know like how to troubleshoot such an edge case that is very, I want to say, like, has a lot of potential to happen in those scenarios. Because again, as we discussed, an SI could, put a device there and just add it to that like network loop and call it good. So. Yeah. And I think we talked about the first time we, we talked about, uh, I think Dave even tagged the episode like plug and pray. And I talked a lot about like my interest or excitement or the, the, the reason I've always enjoyed this is because that network remains to look like a black box to most people. We, we plug in these PLCs and these drives and this IO and these SCADA systems and we hope and pray that the information gets where it needs to get. But when something goes wrong, like this example, where they're like, we are just observing that for some reason, like we can ping this drive, we can ping this PLC, they can see each other, it's online in the program, but it issues to start and the drive's not starting, but then I can manually start. And at that point, it gets real muddy. Like, how do we troubleshoot this problem? And for me, it's, we got to go look in that box. Let's go see what's on the wire. What's And we get asked a lot about Wireshark. Can you teach us how to use Wireshark? And I've mentioned like, I can show you what all the knobs are, but Wireshark's not like a one person thing. Like even I can't do Wireshark on my own. Like I get that capture and then I immediately ask the SI questions. Hey, I need you to help me identify who is this device? Should it be talking to this other one? Should this kind of traffic be here? So oh, over time, we obviously get more experienced and so we can do those troubleshoots faster, but I can't do it alone. I have to do it in concert with the guys or girls that program that system to say, oh, do you expect this PLC to be talking to this device? Do you expect these things to be talking to this PLC? Do you expect to see this protocol? It's always a joint effort along with the people who program the system. Dave? Absolutely. Josh, I was happy you brought up Wireshark because if everyone, anyone follows Josh on LinkedIn, everyone will know Josh's favorite saying is Wireshark is the answer to all OT networking problems. <laughs> I, did, did I get that one correct? Are you going to make me say it? <laughs> no, 
No, we, we, we will not make Josh. We will not make Josh say that. But, but no, I think that's interesting. And, and I know on episode fifty-nine, if, if anyone wants to go back and listen, we, we delve, we, we dove deeper into a number of these tools, and Josh showed us some of those captures. And I think it's very valuable. I would strongly suggest anyone who has not seen or listened to that go take a listen or a watch back to that particular episode. Absolutely valuable, especially if you're in the process of learning OT networking, uh, mostly because, again, I feel like Josh is absolutely one of the top, if not the top of the Rolodex of, of anyone we'd call because he has devoted a significant portion of his career into into focusing on the OT networking side. Josh, let me go drive the conversation forward a, a little bit outside of some of the problems you're currently seeing. What do you imagine the network networks of the future to, to look like? Is it going to be a continuation of piecemeal of we're going to go solve particular problems? Is it going to be at some point lots of people are going to say, hey, we actually need to go upgrade our OT network wholesale? What do you imagine that it's going to both look like and what that process so will be? So the biggest challenge today is when I talk about taking that step one and being ready to talk about step two and three the challenge is resources at the end user. We're, we're not looking to be on contract to maintain our customers' networks, for example, right? So we always know when we set up a new network for a customer, we're going to have to figure out what is this transition period for which we are maybe pre-configuring and delivering you switches that you're installing to until you get to the point where you're comfortable configuring them uh, using some of the other switches as a baseline to be able to expand this network. And that line looks different for every customer. Some customers were in that relationship for a year and a half for that transition period. And for other customers inside of two months, they're ready to take it over. But the biggest challenge is when we talk about VLANs, we start to talk about access control lists or firewalling. We start to talk about network management systems, network monitoring, all these different pieces. And the requirements potentially are going to go up if regulation hits other verticals besides utilities from a cybersecurity perspective. The biggest challenge is I'm not here telling you it's trivial to learn how to do this from scratch and be able to maintain a more robust network. You got to dedicate some time and resources and training to it. And even with that, if they're not dedicating a body to it, for example, because maybe the network's not that large, but it is still that sophisticated, it is challenging for customers who already have automation engineers, for example, who already have on their plate everything that they're already doing, right? They're responsible for the PLCs, the drives, the IO, electrical, instrumentation, SCADA, process. And now I'm saying, I'd like you to level up on your networking, please. <laughs> I get that's a big ask and why that's a challenge. So I am really anxious for, there's a whole category and they're under different umbrella terms like uh, SDN, software defined networking, or you may hear the term intent-based networking. And a lot of these things specific to OT anyway, have this goal in mind of giving an end user some user interface that you could picture as a single pane of glass to their network, where they could, for example, click a PLC and a drive and say, I need this PLC to talk to this drive over SIP, over Ethernet IP, and hit apply. And then what would happen is that this controller platform for SDN pushes policy out to these SDN switches that programs not only the path, how does it get there and is there a redundant, a redundant path, but also restricts that, okay, nothing else, no other kinds of traffic, nothing else can talk to this drive, nothing else can talk to this PLC. It combines these concepts of deny by default, firewall at every switch port, but providing it 
in a single pane of glass point and click type user interface. These are the type of directions I'm hoping more of the market goes to. A couple of the couple of vendors are already out there with platforms like this, deploying this into production networks. And I'm hoping to see just more and more competition and more options in this space. And I would love for the next time that we talk that we're like, oh, we've deployed half a dozen networks that look like this now, because I think there's a much, there's a much increased likelihood that an end user could take on a even more robust, even more secure network at scale with platforms like that than what they would have to do today, which can be sort of tedious and time consuming and error prone. And some of these newer platforms and technologies take that out of the mix and make it simpler. Let me ask you maybe a follow-up on that, Josh. Are you seeing any technologies besides, I want to say, like traditional controls like uh, PLCs and maybe like remote I.O. type of devices being introduced more and more? Like robotics, I'm thinking maybe a vision that hits with like more traffic than, let's call it a PLC, by sending images to servers. Are you seeing, again, like AMRs, maybe like anything like interesting, like edge devices, more IPCs, like in general, or are those all like from your perspective equal, there's just more of them or is it different? I, I would tend to say equal, but you mentioned cameras <laughs> and we were on a call just yesterday and this customer is an OEM. They have this, I'll call it a large machine that the machine is the size of a mini bus and it's practically like a plant unto itself. There's 15 different PLCs in this one machine and each PLC has its own IO and device network and everything. And the call was, we're going to build a smaller version of this. That's just like a single one of these instead of the 15. And so we're trying to look at how to scale down this infrastructure from the server to the network. And as we were discussing it, I'm like, okay, I see now you've got an, and that minibus system is pretty sophisticated from a networking standpoint. It's fully managed. There's a firewall, there's secure remote access, there's 10 gig ports on the ethernet switches, which is unusual. I would say it's in the sub 1% for our systems. Um, but as we were going over this example, he's, yeah, the issue is we're looking at this, these cameras that we use. And right now it's connecting directly to this Beckoff PLC, but I, I don't think it's on an IPC basically. And we're trying to run the camera software in parallel to the Beckoff PLC. And I'm not sure we're gonna have enough horsepower to do it on that IPC. I think this is gonna have to move up to the bigger server. The camera vendor is pretty much telling us we're going to want that 10 gig connection. And I'm like, oh, this has just got to be the tip of the iceberg. Like to your point with the vision systems and everything, I got to imagine at scale with quantity. I I've been saying for a decade that the vendors, the networking vendors keep wanting to push everybody gig gig. And I'm like, why are we in a rush to do this? I ask a question in our training class and I'll ask it to you guys now. If you had to guess what an average port utilization is, on a networking port, you know, in a plant network, what would you guess is the average or the range of utilization from zero to a hundred? I go ahead, Dave. I, I'm going to, I feel like Vlad is setting me up here to fail. That's but, the point of this exercise. I, I'd imagine it's pretty small. <laughs> right, right, like, I guess I'm going to go okay. with 2% because the, the last time Josh was on, you talked about issues at the five to 10 or five to 15% range. So I'm going to guess 2% and let Vlad go easily. I guess like I'm going to throw in the PLC memory utilization percentage, which for me is around like 30 to 40%. So when we ask this in class, we regularly get, I don't know, 50 plus or minus somebody guess 20, 10, and they regularly guess in this range. I, I think it would be a totally reasonable thing to throw out that guess, but 
I remind everybody that now think about this, the protocols that we're still running in these automation systems, almost all of them started as a serial protocol, maybe running at like 9,600K mm-hmm. or something. And then we wrapped it in TCP and threw it on an ethernet pipe. So what you'll actually find is that these systems tend to have fractions of a percent utilization on the majority of ports. And maybe at the data aggregator PLC or at the SCADA server, there's an exception there and we bubble up into the low single digits. But otherwise, and and I'm talking about on a 100 meg port here, by the way, Uh, otherwise we're not getting any meaningful utilization unless you're doing something other than SCADA protocols like images, video, these things tend to be hit heavier and can start to stack up on ports pretty quickly. So there's this huge delta mm-hmm. between the networking traffic, just from a capacity volume data rate standpoint of traditional automation traffic versus things like voice and video. Mm-hmm. So while I used to say these vendors are crazy and they're trying to sell you too much with this all gig, like it's not as easy for me to say that anymore. I- I've got to qualify these questions about, are you guys thinking about cameras and video or converged networks because if you are we need to have a bigger conversation about at least we got a can manufacturing customer right now who's ripping and replacing upwards of 400 switches in their system we're about 100 in so far and when they came back for the second run they sent us like the models that were crossing and i'm looking at them and if we cross them directly we would cross some of them for example with just eight port 10 100 copper switches and so we had a phone call yesterday and i was like I don't think it's a good idea to spend the money to rip and replace. This is a managed switch they're replacing, by the way. They're just very unhappy with the platform. I was like, I can't imagine spending the money to rip and replace a managed switch with, agreed, a better managed switch that's going to get you better visibility, better control, all these things, but not taking the opportunity to at least upgrade the uplinks so that your entire like switch-to-switch infrastructure is gigabit. And we looked at the price delta, and after talking about it, he's yeah, you're totally right. I was like, now you may have some... Fringe exceptions here where there's a switch like deep in a panel and all that it's doing is like facilitating the eight drives to the local PLC. Yeah, there's exceptions here. And so if you want to go through this list and kind of flag those and we want to keep those 10100, that's fine. But if this switch is going to like uplink in a meaningful way to another panel or the major ring for your backbone or something like that, we should probably at least take that step today while you're spending some money is getting at least that gig infrastructure in place. Josh, maybe some fundamental or beginner questions on my yeah. side. So, number one, like on that traffic question, what is what are your thoughts about remote connectivity? Because I think it's been a huge push for many factories since the pandemic. Is that uh, causing any of the problems, or is that also fairly insignificant when it comes to the port uh, utilization? And are we referring to a technician like remotely accessing a system from like PLCs? home? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So accessing like a PLC to program remotely or at least like troubleshoot remotely. And I think now there's even more like robotic systems that you can access the robot, see what it's doing from home or from like a remote location. So somehow I haven't had a chance to work on a system with significant robotics and gotten a look at the traffic associated with the robotics yet. So I'm genuinely curious, especially if there's cameras involved. Outside of that, I can say that it doesn't tend to move the needle too much as far as remote access to a PLC and getting online with a PLC and making changes. To the point, this this entire market category of OT-specific remote access, I'm talking brands like Ewan, Secomia, Tossiebox, Automation Direct, White Labels Run for Mixon, they, they, there's Stridelinks VPN. They're all very similar solutions. And a lot of times we've seen those deployed and we've helped deploy those where the connection to the internet that those things need to facilitate the remote access 
part of the reason those solutions got popular is because that you can get them deployed without needing IT to do things. So one choice is IT could hand a cable that is maybe off the guest network, right? It doesn't have access to anything, but it just has outbound internet access. But even that sometimes can be a challenge for some customers. So the reason they go with these solutions is you can buy them with embedded cellular modems and have it use cellular as the uplink. And those cellular links, there's some exceptions here, but a lot of times we're talking about remote areas, lower signal strengths that they're not getting much more than maybe five, five megabits per second on that cellular link. And it's still enough. It's still plenty to get online with that PLC and make a change. Gotcha. The other, maybe again, like beginner question. So I want to understand the the statement of a better managed switch, right? Because I guess in my mind, having done just the CCNA, I know that every platform, whether it is like Rockwell, Siemens, Moxa, Fortinet, has they obviously have a range of switches from very inexpensive to very expensive. Let, let's call it that. But what's when you say like a better managed switch, is that because it has some extra features that you wouldn't find on the kind of lower end models? What does that truly mean? Is it that it has something different or faster traffic, better monitoring, better UI? Like what is that? So remember earlier, I made the comment that like a, a majority of the switches on my wall may even fall into a B if I were to grade them, but that B is sufficient yes. for a lot of applications. Mm -hmm. So the exception I make to a B being okay is the larger that system gets. <laughs> I, I can get away with a B switch if we're doing like three switches and facilitating a handful of PLCs and IO. If we're building like a plant wide network, I suspect I'm going to want some tooling like a network management piece of software so that if I need to make a change, I could potentially add a VLAN to 40, 50, 100 switches without needing to log into every switch one-on-one, -on -one, potentially do like a UI specific thing that is and potentially break it one switch in the middle of a 10 switch chain. It's just very error prone. So when I talk about the bigger systems, I want more tools. And so, for example, on the wall, you're going to find the vendors that have even a network management software. That's a lower list. If I'm dealing with 12 to 15 vendors regularly, maybe only two or three of them make a piece of network management software to work with their switches or maybe work with multiple switches. That's a big one I would mention. The other one I would mention is just it's to the scalability point. One of those larger customers I mentioned who has the 15 automation engineers, when they were trying to figure out this transition of like, all right, when are we going to stop having them configure for us and we start configuring ourselves? Even for us, that's the question when we're lighting up 15, 20, 100 switches on the bench. How do I take a baseline configuration and then use it uh, for the future switches? The obvious choice there typically is I want to export a human readable text-based config file that I can save as, manipulate a few fields in, and now I've got the second switches configuration file and so on. Maybe you write a script or something, fill out a spreadsheet and generate 100 config files. A lot of switch platforms, you can back up a file so that you could restore it back to that switch, but what you're backing up is this binary blob. You can't look inside it. You can't see any of the values inside it. So it becomes a lot harder to work with at scale. So maybe I don't mind that on a small system with two or three switches, but if I've got 100 switches, that's pretty tough. It also makes it hard for me to do things like make comparisons. When I get that text-based config file, we can diff those files and very quickly identify, did something get fat fingered or was a mistake made here? If I don't do it, I've got to open up two browser tabs, put them side by side, go through 20 different menus in a web UI comparing settings. And that's even assuming that the web UI is reliable and that the answer it's showing me is actually what's set and not an artifact of 
some Java issue or browser rendering issue. So there's just lots of little things like that that don't matter to me at a small scale, but they matter a lot to me at a large scale. Interesting. And, and I guess I'm assuming like on the IT side, at least like with the larger vendors, that feature is almost assumed to always be there, right? Because they have almost always very large scale deployments, or is that also a challenge there? Yeah, I would say you can't take anything for granted. <laughs> I've complained online before about the spirit airlining of the networking world, meaning that we used to just have managed switches and unmanaged switches. And we could explain to someone what that delta is and they could make a decision. But these days you have unmanaged on one extreme end, you have managed on the other extreme end. And in between you have these vendor made up categories of light, basic, smart. And then even within managed, they'll have managed light or managed advanced. So I've got a vendor, for example, who has like anywhere, depending on their legacy stuff or their new platform, there might be two to five different like software levels. And this isn't necessarily a software level you can purchase and field upgrade too. So that decision you make at the time of purchase is important because you're stuck with right. it. And th that sort of thing, it's frustrating for me who spends all my time in this space. I find it very intimidating for the customers that are having to deal with these choices blindly and are probably maybe just getting led down the path from a distributor or maybe a manufacturer on making that choice. But sometimes within those tiers are things like this, that at the low tier, you can export a binary file, but you got to go up a level if you want to export a text readable file. So there's lots of gotchas and traps out there for people. <laughs> Absolutely. I So we've got a bunch of great questions coming through, and I want to get to those questions in just a moment. I will say that I, I can see my LinkedIn is saying that people are commenting on this, that I <clears throat> cannot see any of your comments whatsoever. I see that I'm pretty sure we're joining Hank on a service call somewhere yes. in Canada but I cannot see it anywhere in order to go pull it up. So if you guys uh, have questions for Josh or other things, please go ahead and continue to comment some of those questions. We'll get to that as soon as we, we go thank some people. And, and this week, this month, we want to go thank Siemens for sponsoring the Manufacturing Hub theme. Uh, accelerating Accelerate transformation for industrial production is what Siemens is all about during the SPS Fair 2023 in the beautiful city of Nuremberg in Bavaria, Germany. And fun fact to everyone, I think I've misspelled Nuremberg 100% of the times that I've tried to spell it as I go to, to look it up as Vlad and I head there towards SPS Fair coming up in a couple of weeks. So both Vlad and I are super excited to be featured guests and co-hosts at this Siemens event. We've got a bunch of great both in-person and on live content uh, coming your way. Vlad and I have a couple of presentations. We will have Manufacturing Hub Live uh, on Wednesday morning in a couple of weeks. Uh, I guess Wednesday morning U.S. time, end of the end of Wednesday Germany time, and we are very excited for that. You guys can watch it both here on LinkedIn, all of our normal channels, as well as through the Siemens platform that is going on. So if you guys are attending in person, come by, say hi to me, say hi to Vlad, come learn about some of the advanced solutions uh, that are transforming manufacturing across the globe. I know that there's a bunch of battery stuff that I'm interested to go do a little bit more digging into. I got to go hang out with a little bit of some of the interesting robotic pick and place at Hanover, and I'm interested to go see some more of that. If you guys aren't gonna be there, come watch our stage presentations as we discuss modern architectures for ITOT environments and hyper-local solutions for a global economy. 
if you can't attend in person, no worries. We Siemens will be streaming the stage presentation so you can watch them live or catch the recording on demand in your own time. Guests can get their free ticket for in-person attendance at Siemens.com slash SPS Fair. We'll go ahead and drop that link below and or access the virtual event after registering with the same link. And we'll go ahead and drop those links below if you guys are listening to this. If you guys are listening to this on podcast form, we will go ahead and have those links there. And then when the show is done, all of that will, will come out as well. So again, thank you to Siemens for this. And for anyone keeping count, this is at least the second time I've mentioned SPS for Vlad. Josh, we want to get back to you. We've got some questions coming in. We've got a question from Doug Miller yeah. that is eerily specific. So I'm like hopeful that, that this was a bit of a setup, but, but he wants to know what your favorite troubleshoot memory, one that re- required you to dig deep into your OT knowledge and resulted in cheers. Uh, I don't know done. if this is the one he's digging for, but it's the one I'm going to pick. Just a couple okay. of months ago, we got contacted by a very large materials handling integrator about a large distribution facility that they had started up about a year ago. And what was happening is belts were regularly stopping, right? Drives were faulting out, belts are stopping, production downtime, whatever we want to call this general category, the, the, the system is faulting out. And the stat they threw out to me on this intro phone call is we've got 80% port utilizations in this system. And I was like, wait, time out. Didn't you say there's like a hundred switches? They're like, yeah, I was like, you have a hundred managed switches in this system. That's not a small system. We, we're in my, clearly in my large category. And and you're saying you have 80% on a port somewhere? And they're like, no, no, on multiple ports. And so my immediate response based on the story, I, the comments I made earlier is I'm troubleshooting things when I see five. I want to know what's making up that 5%. When I hear 80, I'm like, how is this facility not on fire? <laughs> because OT devices <laughs> tend to tip over on a lot less than this. So it's not a surprise to me. And then they send me a screenshot out of the switch showing me port utilizations and a little bar chart. And sure enough, Multiple are sitting there at 80. And I'm like, this is amazing. I cannot wait to look at this. I was like, could I get a capture? And so they send me a capture. The capture for a minute or two is like 2.2 gigs. So without even opening the file, I'm like, oh, this is real. (laughs) It's actually so big, like my version of Wireshark would crash trying to open it. So I had to use like (laughs) command line T-Shark to make it smaller before I could even open it. To basically, if it was a two-minute capture, I had to cut it down to 20 seconds <laughs> to wow. get it small enough to, to be able to look at it. What I find when I open it up, this again was a broadcast domain capture, meaning no special work was done. We're not mirroring a specific port. I'm plugging in, and if I see this, everybody's seeing it. And what I see is upwards of 85,000 packets per second, which is extremely high. And what yeah. the 85,000 packets per second are is I look at the conversations list in Wireshark, which is who is talking to who. And in a broadcast domain capture, I should only see pretty much broadcast packets from maybe everybody or things targeted at my laptop. But what I see is a bunch of one-to-one conversations, a PLC talking to IO, a PLC talking to a drive, a PLC talking to SCADA. And I'm like, oh, this is unicast flooding. This is one-to-one traffic that in a switched network should never be flooding. But something is occurring to making this traffic flood. Historically, I've only had two things to look at when traffic is flooding. One is it's an older switch, like it's a 20-year-old switch, which happens. It's OT. And you're overflowing the MAC address table. It can only hold 4,000 MAC addresses. You've got 5,000. And when you overflow the MAC address table, you just start flooding everything because it just basically doesn't have enough horsepower to handle more. The other one, which I've also seen in the field, is 
you don't have switches, you have hubs. Because <laughs> a, a customer, I was like, where did you get these? They're like, our IT department gave them to us when they upgraded. I was like, stop taking stuff from IT. <laughs> if, if they're getting rid of it, they're getting rid of it for a reason. So that was the second reason I'd seen. This was neither of those cases. Like I knew the vendor, I knew the product. I'm like, that shouldn't happen. And then I was like, talk to me about the configuration. And so we get online with a few. He starts showing me a few things and I'm like, oh. So there is a concept, I have a blog post on this concept before this troubleshoot called overlapping VLANs. It is not your traditional VLANs where you're assigning ports one and two to this VLAN for this line, ports three and four to this VLAN for this line. It, it starts that way, but then the overlapping concept is you take port five, which is some device that's common that needs to talk to devices in both VLANs without a router. And this manufacturer even has uh, a white paper on this topic, showing you an example situation with a PLC and some drives and IO and how you might use this feature. Now, the example shows configuring one overlapping port on a single switch. But the rest of the document loosely implies you could expand this concept and maybe create multiple overlapping ports and maybe trunk that around. And in fact, they said, yeah, this, the switch vendor made this recommendation for our situation. And they helped us configure these switches. Now, in my blog post, there's a big asterisk caveat about this little bit toggle on a feature that's required. And if that feature is not in, available in the platform, I'm like, do not configure this. <laughs> it can lead to unicast flooding. Uh, again, comes up one of these situations where uh, ignorance played part here. They were just doing what the vendor told them to do. So I put this on the bench with the suspicion like, oh, I think I know what's happening here, but this is going to be amazing. So I borrow one of these switches. I put it on the bench. Mm -hmm. I configure it and then confirm with Wireshark. Yeah, when you configure multiple overlapping ports on this platform that doesn't have that extra feature I mentioned in my blog post, it leads to unicast flooding. I get on a call with the vendor support. I don't tell them who I'm calling on behalf of. <laughs> I'm like, I just want to talk about a situation. And then I want to get your response to this behavior we're seeing on the bench. Is this expected? Is it unexpected? If it's unexpected, is it a bug? How would you respond? They're like, who's this for? <laughs> and so I cough it up. I say who it's for. They're like, oh, yeah, I remember that one. They were having problems with high utilization. Uh... <laughs> and so I'm there in the field with them, talking them through. We know what the cause is for the 80%. Mm -hmm. What is the solution? Mind you, this integrator has been done with this job <laughs> for a couple of months. They're supposed to be moving on, but they're constantly out there fighting fires with this 80% and the shutdowns. So I have a couple of suggestions as far as like long-term solutions, how I would build this greenfield. We would VLAN segment this and actually route the traffic when you have something that needs to talk to multiple networks. And they're like, I feel like you're going to say, but, and I'm like, this is going to be a major lift. You've yeah. got to not only reconfigure these hundred switches, you've got to touch your end devices. You've got to re-IP, you've got to re-gateway. We're talking about a hundred switches. We're talking about thousand plus assets between PLCs and IO and drives. So they're like, we don't love this answer. <laughs> what, <laughs> what other alternatives are there? So while I'm there, I give them like a Band-Aid. The Band-Aid drops the 80 down to 40. I'm like, this is still way too much. These are still going to lock up. It's just going to take a little bit longer for them to lock up and fault out. And I can tell they're thinking about leaving it alone. Like, we've cut it in half. <laughs> we've extended the problem. And I get to the airport and something occurs to me. And... I don't know if you guys know the movie Enemy of the State with Gene Hackman and Will Smith, but I've shared this meme on LinkedIn before where Gene Hackman says to Will Smith, you're either incredibly smart or incredibly stupid. And th that's how I felt about this solve, which is I was about to get on a plane and I called the integrator and I said, 
Oh, I have a solution. It will improve the situation. I would never make this suggestion in a million years under any other circumstances. What is it? I was like, take a paperclip and factory default all 100 of those switches. He's what? I was like, well, if you default them, everything's going to be flat. It's going to be one flat network, no VLANs, no overlaps. But the way your IP already has the devices flat in a common network, it just has this overlapping VLAN configuration. So what's going to happen is everything's going to be in the same broadcast domain, which normally I, I wouldn't recommend at this size, but you're fighting eight, 40 to 80% utilization. When you hit that paperclip and this switch comes back up, these utilizations are going to drop to sub two, sub one. He's like, how do we prove this? <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, you mentioned you have other locations like this facility where you didn't configure these VLANs. Go look at those utilizations and tell me what they are. So he calls me a day later. He's, yeah, you're right. We looked at those. They're all like single digits. We just got one or two more meetings. We're going to talk to the customer. I think we're going to go do this on Saturday. And so on Saturday, the main engineer went around, paper clipped all 100 of these switches. All these utilizations came down below one and the system hasn't locked up since. And I love and hate this solution. <laughs> I, yeah. I hate it. I, I hate it because in no universe is this my Greenfield suggestion to anyone. But considering the alternative, the situation they had got, they built themselves on top of a house of cards here, which was completely untenable, which is why the system was just failing. So our kind of joint agreement is, look, this is the immediate fix. It, it's going to stop the shutdowns. But here's what I need you to commit to me if I'm going to continue to consult with you guys on this project, which is. Do not add to this system as is. You mentioned there's some expansion coming up. When you're going to expand, we're going to deploy layer three switches. We're going to set up new segments. You're going to route to the existing one. And ideally, you would maybe look to carve out when there's time and there's budget, taking some of this existing network and do the re-IP thing, but over time, not trying to boil the ocean and accomplish it all in a weekend and have a lot of risk associated with it and stuff like that. So that, that's one of my favorite ones from, from recent months. Josh, if I can ask a question, and maybe the, for my knowledge and the listeners as well, what's the, the advantage of doing it with the overlapping VLAN feature versus, as you've mentioned, you can simply route the traffic of whatever that device is uh, via layer three, right? I'm assuming. Why would you use that overlapping feature? Is there an advantage to it? The vendor pitch uh, from both the vendor with the white paper who switches this was and the vendor that I have a post for is here's a way to facilitate communications between groups of devices, separate the groups that you want to, but they have a common thing they want to talk to without needing a router. It's literally a, a cost savings and sophistication of implementation thing. Like you get to IP everything in one big flat network. It's a, the argument is cost and simplicity. I put triple asterisks next to it about this is like in 15 years, I have found the opportunity and occasion to use this capability once. <laughs> So gotcha. it is not a common tool. It is a very, I would consider it a fringe tool. And certainly this applying it to the network at large and pushing it around the entire network, like I, I huge red flags for me. I've actually talked to that vendor since about this whole thing at a higher level, like a product management level, because I was telling them like, by the way, these switches are uh, not for this project, but for this SI moving forward, they're asking for what other vendors should we be looking at? Mm -hmm. And here's part of why that happened. And so part of that conversation with product management is you guys have this white paper out there. If anybody Googles, they're going to find this. You guys as tech support, your tech support department recommended this idea and helped them configure. Like there's a giant missing, like misunderstanding here that 
I think you guys understand now, but you need to wipe this white paper from the face of the internet <laughs> and publish a new one that wouldn't put a customer in that position again. Gotcha. I, I love your solution, Josh, but I also feel like the last six hours we've talked about this has all been a lie. I feel like Josh starts all of our conversations of everything should not be flat like this. And then his recommendation is, is just go make everything as flat as humanly possible. So, it's, it's, I agree so, so I, in, in two weeks, I'm going to do training for that company for about 12 engineers. And at least a couple of the engineers in the room will be the ones from this project. So this yep. will be heavily discussed. Forget everything. <laughs> forget everything that happened. <laughs> and now we're going to start over for new projects. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I love that. Uh, we've got some more questions that we want to make sure that we get uh, from listeners. Josh, we've got a question from Matthew Paris uh, saying, what immediate tactical steps, hardware, configuration, topology, et cetera, would you recommend for end users to improve their OT networks? And, and I will toss it out to Matthew that we have talked about this a little bit um, earlier in the show, and I feel like a lot of it is very much, it depends, but I feel like it was a good question for listeners who may not have caught the beginning of the show, Josh, and I wanted to throw it out to you. I'll say yes and yes. <laughs> Hardware, <laughs> configuration, and topology. Now, I, I think if I were to try and take a quick swing at it, what I would say is the unmanaged versus managed topic comes up a ton. I think we talked about it when I was on here last time, and I've posted a ton about it and have blog posts about it. It's very hard for me to buy that there are that many scenarios remaining <laughs> out there in industrial automation systems where it makes sense to have an unmanaged switch. The one that I sometimes hold on to is the OEM panel for a small set of devices that doesn't mm -hmm. connect to a larger network. But that last part is the caveat, right? Like how yep. often is it these days that it's going to stay an island? So my, I guess my comment number one is like, the managed switch is almost a non-starter to me. If someone's talking to me, something has clearly happened where a managed switch or managed switches are going to be part of the conversation. And then if we talk about configuration, if you hop around on our blog, you'll see posts about how to configure IGMP for multicast management, which is a huge topic, especially in Allen Bradley control systems of different vintages. We talk about diagnostics in the which managed switch post series. And I talk about, I've mentioned network management software solutions. So the idea of once you deploy these managed switches, what should you be looking at to have some sense of the health of your network? And we mm -hmm. talk in training about a few specific properties like CRC errors that will clue you into physical media problems or collisions that will clue you into like duplex mismatches on legacy hardware, or someone hard coding a speed in duplex because the vendor maybe told them to do it. And I'm yelling, I don't want to start there. Let's, let, yep. let's go back to auto negotiate and let this come in full duplex. So in order, I would say, Managed infrastructure, configuring things that are applicable to your control system environment and platform, potentially like IGMP, monitoring and diagnostics. And then the part we rarely get to, but I would love to get to as the step one and a half or step two with customers is further in kind of the security conversation about we set this up, we set this up with segmentation, the broadcast domains are isolated, but everybody can talk to everybody. I don't think that's necessary in your system. Can we start to have a conversation about maybe restricting this down to just what needs to talk to what, whether that's using a firewall in between those segments to do that, whether it's moving to some sort of SDN platform to have that very granular ability, that, that next step of layering on some security. I just don't know. It, it's basically the next uh, natural evolution of people are recognizing that they have to build more robust networks. They got to go to manage switches. We got to maybe monitor these things. That's the next domino to fall. 
And arguably that domino is falling first and it's what's sparking this other conversation. A lot of the security platform vendors out there can't deploy their tool into customers' networks because their platform requires that the customer has managed network switches that can do port mm -hmm. mirroring and feed the sensors for their system. So there's a little bit of chicken and egg here. Absolutely. No, I think that is great. Denish has a question asking, what would you recommend as the best network monitoring tool uh, that you've seen in an OT environment? Yeah, so this is a question I get a lot too. A customer or a prospect will call and ask about making a recommendation for network monitoring. And I was like, okay, task one is we got to define what network monitoring means. Because historically, in just networking, there's these NMS systems, network management system, network management software. So these are packages like Industrial High Vision from Hirschman or MXView from Moxa or Intraview, which for a while was got bought by Panduit. And then I think Panduit sold it back to the original creator of that software. So that one's not tied to a specific switch vendor. And then even tools like High Vision, it's built by Hirschman and it can do a lot more with Hirschman gear, but we actually run High Vision on a lot of systems that have zero Hirschman. We run it against Stratix, we run it against Moxa because it's opened up to communicate to any SNMP capable managed switch, which is most of that top B level and all of the A level <laughs> as far as which devices can do it. But that network monitoring and management means I'm going to bring in all the switches. I'm going to monitor properties on the switches like utilizations and CRC mm -hmm. errors. I'm going to look at firmware levels. I may give you some configuration like bulk configuration capabilities. That's the category of generic like network monitoring and management. So that's one category. And I've mentioned some tools that exist there. This other one that's bubbled up in the last couple of years that kind of makes the issue confusing is I call the category the anomaly detection market, the behavior analysis market. This is the Dragos, the Nozomi, the Tenable. These are all the guys coming from the cybersecurity angle. Uh, we're going to put something on your system that can monitor all the traffic. It can do two things. It'll do more than two things. But the primary things is we're going to do asset inventory. So either passively or actively through watching traffic on the wire or reaching out and touching and asking the devices, we're going to collect and build out a database of what devices exist on your network? What is their firmware level? Maybe they're even going to like correlate that data with the vulnerability database so they can tell you, hey, this CVE is out. It's a 10 and you have this device and you have it at this firmware level. So you need to evaluate where it sits in your network and whether there's something you need action you want to take immediately or you want to schedule this. What, what does it look like? The next thing those software packages will do beyond just the asset inventory is they have the potential to if you feed mm -hmm. the information to them, you, you got to be able to feed it to them. But if you can feed them this horizontal traffic, this east-west traffic, not just across the firewall, but maybe even just laterally between a segment in your network, between the PLC and IO and drives, they can start to monitor behavior. They're going to see that, oh, generally speaking, the steady state baseline traffic of this network looks like X. It's this PLC talking to this 20 devices over these protocols at these data rates. That way, when something new shows up, right? like a rogue IP all of a sudden talking to this PLC, or there's a new node that the PLC is talking to, anything new shows up, that software is able to track it, flag it as anomalous. So you can immediately investigate and look into, wait, what is that? Did we know that? Do I just need to acknowledge it? Or do we need to go find out what's plugged in and kick somebody out of our network? Josh, if I can ask you a follow-up to that answer, and I know we, we haven't necessarily prepared for this, and this is a viewer <laughs> question. Is there a Bring resource it. that maybe summarizes those like tools slash applications, whether you have like a blog post on Traceroute on, or on LinkedIn that can 
give people a bit more than us talking about it for five minutes because I don't know it's a lot. Yeah. So not yet. I would say I've been delinquent. This is on me. Right. Uh, th right. This is a topic we've like I have in decks that I've discussed with customers in meetings before this to be ready to talk about this difference of category and which one are you asking for? Because usually when they ask the question, they're picturing one of those two things specifically. And sometimes they, they aren't aware that these categories exist. So the conversation is useful either way. But I never know. So sometimes they ask me and, I, and then I, after a couple of questions, it becomes clear. Oh, you're asking for the second category. Here are the players. Here, here's who you should talk to and look at. And sometimes it's the first category. And I'm like, here are the mm -hmm. players. Here. And sometimes it's both. They're like, oh, I'd actually like to do all of that stuff. And we got to figure out the schedule. I, I think to your point, it would be worthwhile for me to turn that deck into a post or a post series that kind of highlights the categories, the players, the features, the capabilities, but it does not exist today. You gave me homework, Vlad. I look again, I, I think that the best way to, let's call it, get the customers on board is to educate them. And I think that if they can take at least some of the first steps to learn a bit more about their networks, understand like what's going on before necessarily always picking up the phone and calling the experts and just telling them, what the solution is, I, I think it's good for them to know that there are certain tools they can, at the very least, leverage. And I, again, I feel the struggle of an OT engineer just trying to firefight those issues without necessarily knowing what they could be doing at the very uh, first step. So I would definitely appreciate a resource like that. If and to, to your point, even the, the post that we do have today on a lot of these different topics, whether it's NAT or remote access or managed switches, you'll see a very similar note at the end of those posts, which is like, this is a waterfall topic mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's muddy. And a lot of times what I'm flagging is like the vendors don't necessarily make it easy. And then if we're talking about comparing solutions from vendors, it gets even harder because sometimes they'll have different names for the same feature and sure. capability. So it's even hard to make direct comparisons. I flag at the end of all these posts, like I get it. Like I know it's challenging and call us. Like we're here to help you through this to your point. That only scales so far. There's only so, mm -hmm. so many phone calls we can answer in a day. So that, that is why we do take the attempt at hitting these different topics that we get asked the most questions about. That used to be the rule that I had is if I answered the same question more than three times, then it should have a blog post. And I try to stick to that rule. It's tough to keep up. <laughs> the threshold has increased. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Josh, we've got the normal questions that we ask all of our guests, but before that, we would be negligent if we didn't ask you about your strange obsession with Pennywise. <laughs> be being as it is current daytime, the day after Halloween, can you maybe share why you've posted seemingly dozens of pictures of you and Pennywise all over the place in the last month? This is this is just me trying to stay relevant. You got to stay in front of you got to stay in front of everybody. And that first one, I think I was at Lowe's and it literally just scared the crap out of me. <laughs> and then uh, I didn't realize that, uh, that Pennywise had taken over in this way and was available at every store I was walking into until I was paying attention. <laughs> and then you had to try and uh, you had to try and ruin my day. I, I literally didn't even see what you had put into the invitation. Somebody sent it to me with it circled. And I thought that colleague had circled it and I thought he had Photoshopped it. And I was like, wait, is this really in there? And I, I've been on edge this entire show <laughs> waiting for Pennywise to flash on the screen. We are not quite to that point. I feel like in episode 200 and whatever that we get you on next, we will be sure to just have Pennywise pulsating on the screen or, or something no, like that no. to, to get you. I will be honest, Josh, after seeing your post, I certainly saw a lot more Pennywise <laughs> at a variety of different stores <laughs> than, than I did before.
before I absolutely would not see it. But this has been amazing, Josh. Yeah, as our longtime listeners know, we like to go ask our guests to go predict the future. So what do you, and I know, I guess I should preface it by saying, I guess a lot of the questions we were asking were bounce between tools and what do you think everything is going to look like? But what do you think that the future of OT Networks is going to look like in the next three to five years? I hope it's what I described earlier, that we have these new multiple competing platforms in this direction of SDN or intent-based networking to make it easier for these automation engineers to maintain their networks, build out scalable, robust networks, and be able to maintain them without becoming CCNAs or higher and have to become, the description we get is, I'm not trying to be an IT expert. And I completely, like fully sympathize, empathize with that. It's on the market to deliver solutions to to these customers that clearly need it. And I think cybersecurity, we mentioned earlier, is pushing new requirements, whether that's based on regulation or it's just the C-suite and reputation pushing down like, hey, we need to get a handle on this. Could this happen to us? And so we're seeing increasing like IT participation in the OT networks to mixed results. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying it's wholly a bad thing. But we do need those pieces of the or- those parts of the organization working together. I encourage regularly for IT and OT to figure out what they have in common first as human beings <laughs> before they start this <laughs> adversarial conversation about what one side needs or what the other side needs. And I've got some customers where this goes really well to much success for them. And I have other customers where this goes poorly. And so OT continues to throw up the traditional OT fence on this side of the line. Everything is ours and do not enter. And it's not a, historically, that wasn't an unreasonable position to take. It's becoming harder Mm -hmm. because of the ask that puts on themselves to do it, right? Like we're saying, okay, you're going to throw up that fence and build a large scalable managed network, then you better upscale or add resources to do it. A thousand percent. Dave, before I let you ask the next question, I'm curious, Josh, have you experimented maybe with some of the chat GPT slash LLM tools and Again, I've not done so myself, like on the networking side, do you see like a fit of them in some kind of a capacity, maybe like facilitating network maps in some ways or configuring the switch in some ways, or is that a a waste of time like at this uh, point? No, I wouldn't say it's a waste of time. I would say we haven't dug deep enough into it yet. It's actually on this, we, we have the schedule literally coming up in a couple of weeks where that is a major focus is to evaluate where, like, where is it most applicable? Is it literally what we were talking about earlier, like scaling out configs, or could it be something closer to real time in the management and maintenance? I suspect what's going to happen is that these platforms we're talking about are going to leverage and integrate, and that's going to 10x their horsepower and capabilities even more. So I'm starting to see like sprinklings of these. Obviously, we know that all vendors like to throw the buzzwords on everything, whether or not they're Mm -hmm. really doing anything or not. So I expect that to, it's already definitely happening in the networking space. I haven't seen it specifically necessarily OT networking yet, but I got to imagine it it will have happened by the next time we talk. (laughs) Awesome. Makes sense. I'm looking forward to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. I think that'll be interesting. Josh, as we like to, to ask for some content recommendations. So outside of the Traceroute blog, that everyone can go see and Vlad has got in the comments. I think you've got a book and a podcast recommendation for us. Yeah, podcast is related to everything we've been talking about. So I've got another, I think I recommended an OT cybersecurity podcast the last time I was on. I've got a new OT cybersecurity podcast for you, which is the the Protect, Protect OT, the, the, the guy who uh, calls that at the beginning. 
pronounces it just that way. The Protect OT Cybersecurity Podcast. That one's hosted by my buddy, Mr. Aaron Crow, CTO of Industrial Defender. And so anybody that's looking for kind of OT-specific cybersecurity content, I definitely recommend that one. And then outside of our area, completely unrelated <laughs> to uh, OT networking, my book recommendation is The Creative Act by Rick Rubin. I don't know if Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin is a famous music producer, like co-founder of Def Jam Records. I happened to hear him interviewed on a, another podcast a couple of months ago. And then a month later, I was walking through the bookstore and saw this book he had just released sitting there and I picked it up. And it was an interesting one for me. I don't think this is unique to me, but I also think it's every engineer. But I think sometimes as engineers, sometimes we tend to not think of ourselves as creative. We maybe lean towards thinking of ourselves as more technical or more measured and all these things. And uh, other ones would say the opposite. I I've seen some beautiful descriptions of what it is to be an automation engineer, for example, that take creativity heavily into it. But I, I have found this book very useful in terms of reminding me that even in my job and in my role that, oh, we're all creative human beings. And there's a lot of good, good ways to reframe things and think about problems and think about solutions that uh, I've taken out of that book. So that's my book recommendation today. Oh, and I'd also say I I'm holding the hard copy here. But if you're an audible person, check out the audiobook. Rick Rubin's voice is very meditative. <laughs> Ooh, interesting. Interesting. I always find it interesting when people sit down and read their own books. Um, absolutely. Yeah. But, but no, thank you for both of those uh, recommendations, Josh. Next, we'd like to, to turn to some career advice, right? So if people are looking to get more involved in the OT networking, right? If maybe they think that hopefully we get to these mostly self-configurating more smart architectures and topographies within the next handful of years but we will still need more people like josh who are experts in this if someone is looking to become more of an expert in the ot networking space what is your best career advice for that just start <laughs> there's such a shortage i was on an it like it's the Art of, Art of Network Engineering podcast several months ago, their audience is primarily, and we talked about me coming on and I went on to talk to their audience about what the heck is OT to potentially an audience who's, what is that? And my whole point on that episode was to say, this likely exists. <laughs> There's a good chance this might exist in your organization on the other side of that door. <laughs> if, you're you're making, if you're making things or moving things. And my big point to that audience was also, your employer desperately needs you. They may not yep. realize how, but you've got this skill set. And if you will approach it with a positive attitude about wanting to go help them, you could find the ability to create a new role at that company. And the role you're in may be, I don't want to say commoditized in a negative sense. I, I just mean factually that there's a lot mm -hmm. of people who do the job they're doing today. And it's maybe a lot more competitive. Whereas if there's a role to be had at that organization that doesn't exist yet, they could write a career ticket for themselves. And as it happens, like two months after that podcast aired, I got a message from somebody who said, I went and knocked on that door in my company and they're mm -hmm. creating this role for me. And I was like, oh, this is so amazing. Wow. That is <laughs> amazing. I, I think there's a lot of this that could happen, whether that's transitioning from automation engineer to OT network engineer, whether it's transitioning from IT into OT network engineer, I think if you're willing to raise a hand in your organization and do something like pick the platform that your company already uses, right? See if you can get some spare parts or whatever and start messing around with them in the lab and see if you can upskill. If there's training available from that vendor, 
go take that training. I, I think there's tremendous opportunity to almost educate your own employer that with the help of the rest of the automation group, they're like, look, this is something we desperately need to do. It, it is becoming so large that we can't get our arms around it. And I'm raising my hand saying I'm willing to do it. And, and I think there's a potential for some just next steps in people's careers and, and maybe a fork they never pictured before. But if they're interested, I'd say it's theirs for the taking. Absolutely. I think that, that that is some fantastic advice. Thank you for that, Josh. And then last question is, how can our listeners help you? Who do you want to talk to? Are you guys looking for new customers? Are you looking for new employees? What can our listeners do to help you? I would stick to my list from last time, which is if you need help, if your network's struggling today, if any of those descriptions of tipping over or locking up sound familiar to you, and it seems like a mystery, HMI seeming unresponsive, if you need somebody to take a look at that, whether it's troubleshoot, whether it's starting with that troubleshooting, or we've got this capex project coming up, and we don't want to take the network for granted, so maybe we've had a few of those that has been ticking up a little bit. Where it's okay, we know it's a need. We we haven't paid attention the last time. We want to make sure we look at this while we're spending this while we're approaching this capex project. So if you've got one of those coming up and want somebody to look at it from just the networking perspective, if you need help with product recommendations, procurement, configuration, selection, any of that stuff. That's what we're here for. Fantastic. Josh, this has been awesome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, everyone, for listening and coming to hang out with us live. If you have made it this far, please make sure you're following Josh and Traceroute. Please make sure that you're following Manufacturing Hub as well as Vlad and myself. Go ahead and check out the Siemens SPS links that we will have everywhere over the course of the next couple of weeks as Vlad and I are heading to Europe to go do some live shows and to hopefully talk to a bunch of folks in Europe face-to-face -face that we have not seen before or have not seen in a while. If you guys have made it this far on podcast form, please make sure to rate us five stars in all the places that you can. Hit follow and do the like and subscribe things. I have found, Josh, that if I ask people to like and subscribe, they'd like and subscribe and more people listen, which is just freaking awesome. Until next week, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, guys.